podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. It is natural and fundamental for living beings to want to be happy, healthy, and free from suffering. Life would not have persisted for nearly four billion years were living things not motivated to and reasonably good at seeking favorable circumstances and avoiding unfavorable ones. It seems human aspirations are doomed to be awkwardly incompatible with the vicissitudes of life. Indeed, in most, if not all of us, there is an undercurrent of dis-ease, a fear about what is to come, that the moment of something terrible happening might be in our future. And not just someone else's who we read about in the news. So what to do if we can detach from that belief that our wishes are more important than reality, we can begin to find real peace. Josh Sandman. This episode is about conscious awareness, transformation, freedom, and thoughts in between. And we'll be listening to Josh Sandman who is a family nurse practitioner working in an underserved population in Oregon. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1990 with a degree in American Civilization and Psychology. He then worked as a programmer analysis and research assistant in Penn's Addiction Treatment Research Center for five years before enrolling in a doctoral program in theoretical neuroscience. For 10 years, Josh also worked in Silicon Valley as a software engineer before switching to medicine, a childhood interest of mine. He is married with two young sons and an avid long-distance runner and does science as a hobby. Here is the interview with Josh Sandman. Welcome back, Josh. My first question is, who is Josh Sandman today. Have you learned anything about yourself in life since the last time we spoke? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think um, 
I think I've certainly made maybe a little bit of progress. It wasn't that long ago that we spoke, but I think, you know, every single day I, I make an effort to, uh, um, you know, be a little bit more relaxed about life and its challenges and its ups and downs and um, how best to meet them. And um, I feel like, yeah, I think feel like every little day I'm every day I make a little bit of progress or a little, you know, something new, you know, I don't always have the best days, but, uh, you know, I think overall, I think I just continue down the path that I put myself on more than 20 years ago. What is that path? Well, I think it's, it's, um, I sort of, I practice in the tradition of Soto Zen. Um, I have lay ordination in that tradition. Um, I don't, I don't do it formally anymore. I, I live someplace where there isn't even a, a Buddhist a Soto Zen Buddhist center, um, but I practice on my own, and you know I have some contact with old friends who are doing the same. And um, you know, it's it's sort of it's a life that's committed to paying attention um, to your life, moment by moment, and with the with the hope that the awareness and the attention will help you make better choices and learn and grow as a person and have a more positive, constructive effect on others. That sounds really good. Thank you for answering that question. Sure. My official first question based on the subject will be, what is to be free from suffering? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Um, I would say freedom from suffering is not the absence of suffering. It's um, developing a certain amount of, of comfort with your capacity to bear it, to understand it, and to um, put it to the best use possible, given that it is uh, an intrinsic part of life. Mm. So is the understanding of fundamental suffering mm -hmm. yeah so i i think a, a couple of things happen that when you've practiced for a long time with sort of the meditative life is one is you do suffer less in a certain sense because you 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 more and more you let go of various sorts of struggles with life that are basically rooted in wanting life to be other than how it is, you know, when you, when you boil it all down. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's not that, you know, the, the, the goal of, you know, sort of the Buddhist or the meditative life is not to just basically feel nothing and be indifferent. You know, that would be, I think that would be very concerning. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you know, so if if you if if a loved one gets sick or dies, you feel grief, you know, and that's an appropriate response, even though it's a painful one. But there's a, a deeper level at which you're not shocked by your grief, or you know, um, set off balance by it, or wishing it would just go away. Um, there's more of just like this acceptance that you know these sorts of losses and setbacks are simply a part of life and your response to them is simply a part of life. And the question is, can you just sit with that 
with awareness and openness and, you know, be willing to be with it as it is. And that, that sort of lack of struggle with pain um, changes you in ways that are, you know, not always easily articulable, um, but are pretty profound once you experience it. Yeah, it makes so much sense to me. Uh, you mentioned a meditative life. So um, what is to meditate? Well, in the in the Buddhist tradition, you know, there, there are, you know, there's a number of different Buddhist traditions and there are a, a number of different kinds of, of meditation. Um, Zen is often, um, you know, characterized as having the one method, you know, rather than being there being multiple different kinds of meditations and visualization meditations and meditations on compassion and, you know, various sorts, which are, you know, people find very helpful. Um, Zen is focused on sort of what a lot of people believe was sort of the Buddha's original style of meditation, which is simply resting in your pure awareness of what's happening. Um, so you just, you, you may get distracted, caught up, lost in thought, lost in feeling or whatever, but the practice is always to settle back into the awareness of that experience, what, whatever is happening. Um, and you just keep doing that over and over again, not just when you're doing sitting, formal sitting meditation, but throughout the day. It's, it's sort of a, a, it's a way of life where, you know, attention and presence is foundational to what, what everything else that comes from that. Wow. Um, pure awareness. What would be pure awareness in this very moment, having this conversation with you? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're, you're the awareness is is just this capacity our minds naturally have every moment of the day of of knowing what's happening. You know, I mean, the the, the it's not just that you have a sensation in your body or a thought or an emotion. Um, there's this awareness of what's happening. You know, um, and I think we all have it. But with, with meditation, you, you can cultivate it um, far more than, you know, you, you might have ever imagined so that that awareness is, is deeper and, you know, um, stronger and more persistent in your day to day life. You know, because a lot of us, you know, if we have an untrained mind, you know, we're, we're sort of aware, but, you know, actually, uh, you know, we're often distracted, lost in thought you know, doing errands, you know, we're, we're more caught, the, the awareness is sort of there, but we're, we're much more caught up in the contents of our experience than the actual awareness of those contents. So I'm wondering how different being aware is from being concentrated or paying attention. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, attention and concentration have to do with, you know, sort of how narrowly focused your awareness is. Um, so you you can, if you're really concentrated on a particular task, like doing your math homework or washing the dishes, you may not be as aware of other things that are going on. So, you know, awareness has this sort of capacity to sort of expand and contract, um, which can be perfectly appropriate. 
appropriate. You, you know, there's plenty of things where you need to be very focused and filtering out other things. And then there's other times like with sitting meditation where you just broaden that awareness to as much of your experience as possible. And I think both, both are useful depending on the context. Wow. So it is awareness. It's sort of um, being here, but with our entire being, if it's possible, right? Uh, sensory perceptions, yeah, but also intuition. Let me go back for a moment about suffering, because I had a question for you about acceptance of what it is, of reality as it is. Yeah. How can we accept reality as it is when we are in pain, like physical pain? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think there's a couple of levels to it. One is, you know, you accept your non-acceptance, if that makes any sense. So if in this moment you are not okay with what is happening, then that is just another thing to be aware of and to accept. Um, so it's 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 inclusive at a at 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 a, at, a, at the broadest level. So if you're angry and rejecting what has happened to you or what is going on, then that's the truth. That is the truth of this moment. That is what you're feeling in addition to anything else that's going on. You know, because I think you know the Buddha's point is, in every moment, the world is as it is. You know, and we may not we may not like it, and that's part of how it is 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 the fact that we don't like it. So the the power of awareness is that awareness doesn't accept or reject. Awareness is never angry or sad. Awareness is never confused. It's just aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the more the more we settle into that simple consciousness of what's going on, the more the more the alchemy of our soul starts to take hold. And it's it's not a logical or rational thing, you know. It's not a philosophical argument. It's just what happens, you know. Sort of analogous to if you just go out every day and start running and run every day and run more and more, your body will just simply get more fit. You know, that's just how it is. So Mm. So that also means then when we are in states of mind of happiness and enjoyment and, you know, positive under the effect of positive emotions and maybe due to expectations or, I don't know, feel good experiences, that means we are not aware no, I mean you 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 can be perfectly aware of your happiness and your joy. You know, um those are just more emotions that are just part of being human. So it's you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter what the valence of the emotion is, whether it's positive or negative, you know, all of it's simply a part of life and part of being human. And you can be you can be aware of all of it. You can be lost in it too. You can be totally caught up in your joy and your pleasure and you know, and not really paying attention to its nature because it will change. You know, that's the thing is, is, you know, you're very happy right now, but, you know, all of these things that arise, you know, as the Buddha said, everything that arises will cease. 
you know, any, anything that's conditioned so that it arises based on certain conditions, conditions are constantly fluxing and flowing. You know, the world is, world is constantly in motion. It's constantly changing. And if you try to hold on to, you know, something because you like it, you're going to be disappointed because it's not going to last. <laughs> right. Or we'll become slaves, right? Of such a yeah. thing. <laughs> Trying to repeat over and over and over that experience and yeah. that slavery. And that, yeah. And that was one of the Buddha's, I think, most fundamental insights is that, you know, we're, we're not really, we're kind of ignorant to these fundamental truths about the world that, that, you know, we, we don't, we have very little control over what's going to happen and the world is in flux and changing. And so if you, you, if you invest your whole well being based on having everything the way you want it, um, you know, you're going to be disappointed and people will, people may say, well, of course that's obvious, but that's not actually how we live. We constantly live like we're trying to get to a permanent state of smooth sailing. You know, even if, if confronted with it, we may admit, you know, well, that's silly. Um, I think that's, there's still a deeply seated hope or expectation that if we be good and work hard and, you know, say our prayers and eat our Wheaties and whatever, you know, it'll all, it'll all work out in the end. And that's just not how the world works. And so we're setting ourselves up for this constant unease because we're, we, we know the other shoe is going to drop, but we don't really want it to. And we keep hoping that it's not going to, and then it does. And then we're upset again and around and around it goes. And the Buddha called that the, the, the um, samsara, the wheel of suffering. We're just kind of going around in circles, not realizing that it's our, how our mind is working and our expectations and our you know, whatnot that are actually the problem and not how the world works per se. Mm, true. So the pursuit of happiness is an illusion then? Well, it, if, if happiness means having your circumstances always the way you want them and never the way you want them, then yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm, so my next question, what is happiness to you? Uh, I don't know. I, I, for me, you know, I would almost, I, I almost hesitate to use the word happiness. And in fact, in my own life, I, I don't really think much about happiness. Um, and I think what Z, the Zen practice has taught me, not in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way, is that life isn't really about any particular state of mind, whether it's happiness or sorrow, it's, it's, it's this, it's this willingness to meet life as it is. And that brings, that brings something that's closer to what I would call, you know, peace or satisfaction, which I think is, is more primordial and fundamental than, you know, um, some of these more obvious emotional states like happiness or joy. Right. I agree. Um, what about the pursuit of health? What is to be healthy? Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think very holistically and I think, you know, the Buddha talked very holistically, you know, his, his noble eightfold path and a lot of his other, you know, teachings were, you know, yeah, you, you take care of your mind and your body. 
you know, and, and you take care of others and you take care of your world, you take care of everything as best you can. And so, you know, part of that is eating healthy food. Part of that is exercising because our bodies have the nature of needing to move. Mm. Uh, and, you know, taking time out to rest, make sure you get enough rest, make sure, you know, your bodily needs and your mind needs are met. And but it, but the idea is to do it mindfully, um, so that you're not just making decisions ad hoc or willy nilly or on impulse or because of the latest article you read on the internet or you know it's it's a more considered, conscious, deliberative way of addressing the needs of your body and your mind and and of others. Right. So happiness and health they're part of the journey of life then. They're not a destination or things to be pursued, right, Josh? Yeah, I think it's 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 moment by moment. You know, if you if you know, one way to put it is if you take care of each moment, you know, the overall arc of your life will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking care of this moment, and that yes. might include taking care of yourself in various ways, right, and yep. others, right? Yeah. What is the message behind the quote you wrote in one of your blog posts? The quote says, people make plans and God laughs. I'm just wondering what you meant um, by this. <laughs> I think it's, it's kind of getting to what we were, we were talking about earlier is, is the idea is that, you know, we, we, we actually have so little control over, you know, the direction the world takes, um, you know, and if, if, if you're somebody who's theistic, you know, and believes in God, you know, the way of expressing that is kind of, you know, whatever God is up to is quite a bit beyond our comprehension. And so we, you know, we, we make these plans based on a very limited human fallible view of the world when, you know, something much bigger is going on and it's, it doesn't necessarily have our individual plans in mind when it unfolds. So true. Um, why do you think so many people believe in a personal God? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I never really, you know, I have sort of a complicated feelings on the subject of God, you know, because I, I feel like I'm kind of agnostic. You know, I, I, I don't feel like I really know and I don't really feel like I don't know. Um, but I think, you know, some, some people who believe in God believe that we have that instinct because there is a God and God, that's one of God's ways of, of trying to bring people's attention to connecting with him. You know, we have we have this need because God put it there as a way of leading us to him, you know, and, and prompting us to think about him and, and try to connect with him. Um, you know, if, you, if you're more scientific and, and agnostic or atheistic, you know, it, you may attribute it to our evolutionary heritage as being social creatures who have this instinctive need as social creatures to be part of something larger than themselves and, and, um, you know, connected to something larger than themselves, have something, have deeper meaning, you know, we're, because we're very conscious and rational creatures, we want to think there's a purpose to things and it's not just all willy nilly and random and meaningless. 
um, because meaning is so important to us, you know, you know, and I think that has to do with being social and conscious creatures. Um, so, I mean, I think all of these explanations may have merit, you know, um, you know, and they may both be true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I mean, you know, I, you know, obviously, uh, I'm just one dude. <laughs> <laughs> with a lot of good, um, I would say, good uh, guests about life, the truth um, about life. That's great. How do we balance uh, our need for safety and security with life's unpredictable nature? Well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how, how, how much of a balance it actually is, but I think if you know you live mindfully, um, you can you know, I think be, have better judgment about how you can take care of yourself and your loved ones and not expose yourself and other people to unnecessary risks. Um, you know, in other words, not being foolish and reckless. <laughs> you <laughs> That's know, a good start, you, right? Yeah, yes, because, but you can be a very safe driver and somebody coming the other way is very absorbed in their texting and swerve across traffic, traffic and hit you head on. You know, I mean, you know, you, you can, you can take, you can make good decisions, but you don't have control over the decisions other people make. And you don't have control over which direction that hurricane or tornado is headed, you know, um, you know, so you can, you, you do your best, but you know, but again, you have to remember that the, the world is much bigger and has just, awesome power that we have no power over. <laughs> right. And one of the things about the uh, Stoic philosophy, it's the practices yeah. on reflecting about bad things happening to us. And that's one of the techniques, right, used by Stoics. Yeah. B Buddhists uh, do something very similar. Um, and in fact, you know, in... in in the ancient, you know, I think it's still practiced today, but sometimes uh, monks, you know, um, they go meditate in the charnel grounds, you know, where bodies are burned uh, as a way of, you know, facing death and mortality head on, you know, that this, this is going to happen to you someday, you know, we're all going to die. And um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Buddhist meditations that confront very directly, you know, illness. And, you know, it, as the Buddha said in his, uh, you know, it, the parable of his life, um, whether or not these things literally happened or not, you know, his, his inspiration to seek a resolution to human suffering and, and whatnot was that he, he saw an old person, then he saw a sick person, then he saw a dead person. And, you know, those old age, sickness and death are like the three, you know, examples used of the fact that bad, bad, difficult things are going to happen to us. And none of us are getting out of this life alive. <laughs> I think I think Stoicism and Buddhism, I think I'm not much of an expert on Stoic philosophy, but I think there's a considerable amount of overlap. And I think that just has to be that happens to be one of the ways in which they do overlap. You talk about relaxing deeply into our own pure conscious awareness among all of our attachments to desires, sensations, thoughts, and feelings. My question yeah. is, are some practices 
such as being grateful for something or appreciative of what we already have, one of the uh, the paths to inner peace? Yeah, th- th- that's a that's a very widespread practice. Is like you know gratitude practice, um, you know ag- acknowledging everything from just the gift and mystery of being alive to very specific things and. You know, I think people find that, you know, to be a very powerful and worthwhile practice because it does, you know, it does help balance out the fact that we also tend to be very anxious creatures who have a tendency to focus on everything that's wrong and painful. So it can be, you know, kind of a a good balancing of that tendency. Are there other practices you engage in yourself or you recommend for inner peace? Um. Well, I mean, you know, my cornerstone is the is the mindfulness meditation, but I also, you know, I have a little journal um and when I get up early in the morning and getting started with my day, I write down three things that I'm grateful for and three things that I'm excited about. Um, and that kind of helps orient my mind in that direction and it's just, you know, a simple, you know, relatively quick thing, but it allows me to kind of touch base with with um you know, gratitude. Yeah, I like that, Josh. Um, writing three things, the number three, too. <laughs> so you also wrote, if we can detach from that belief that our wishes are more important than reality, we can begin to find real peace. I love this. So my question is, what would be a good example of the difference between beliefs and reality? Um, well, beliefs are just thoughts arising in our mind and reality is how, how the world actually is. (laughs) Um, and like I alluded to earlier, I mean, I think that's, you know, when the Buddha talked about the four noble truths, I mean, he's saying that's, that's sort of like the fundamental issue is the disconnect between how we believe or want the world to be and how it actually is. And the way to dismantle that disconnect is through, you know, pure awareness and and observation of how the world is and how your mind is and how everything actually is in the moment, you know, as opposed to getting very lost in your beliefs and your thoughts and your ratiocinations about, you know, life, um, you kind of take a step back from that and just focus on, well, how is it now? You know, what's true right now? Um, and yeah. So I'm wondering how we can interact with reality without a belief. How is it possible? <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't think it's totally possible. I think that I, I think it's more that the more aware you are, the more you are aware when you're you an assumption or expectation or a belief is at work in this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, right. the expectation that today wasn't going to be a busy day and it turned out to be a very busy day and how irritated you're getting over the course of the day because your expectation was thwarted. You know, but the reality is it is a busy day and your expectation was simply wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um I'm just wondering what's real, really, and what's not a delusion. Well, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? 
I, I would, you know, I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that. I mean, I think philosophers, you know, still haven't solved the uh, the conundrum of what's real and true and what isn't. You know, I think because we, we can't, we just can't step outside of ourselves and get perspective. You know, we're always, we're subjective beings who have limited minds and limited capacities. And, um, mm. but I think one, you know, one thing I would say is, is stepping out of spiritual realm and into the scientific realm. Um, you know, evolution selects creatures that get enough right about how the world is that they can actually survive. So, and nature is pretty unforgiving. So if, if a creature is not in touch enough with what's real as to where, where the food actually is as opposed to where it isn't and where the tiger actually is as opposed to where it isn't, um, they simply wouldn't survive. So I, I don't I don't think our knowledge about the world is a crapshoot. And, you know, and I think the, the ultimate example of that is the immense power the scientific enterprise has shown for being able to predict and explain and manipulate the world. You know, I mean, the, the devices you and I are using right now to communicate depend on an exquisitely powerful theoretical framework called quantum physics and you know it you know, that if it weren't super accurate about certain things these devices wouldn't even be possible so on the other hand you know we we can clearly believe human beings can clearly believe things that you know to other human beings just seem crazy <laughs> you know so i think it's it's not it's not either we're deluded or we're not i think there are some there are some things that seem a lot more certain and verifiable than others. Um, and again, you know, if, if a belief doesn't actually impair your ability to survive, there's nothing, there's no, no harm, no foul, as nature would say. So I think it's just, it's just a complicated mess. <laughs> it is very much, um, Josh. Oh my God. Yeah, it is. Cause the way I see it is that if we are not deluded enough to survive, we wouldn't be in the body, right, in the first place. What are some basic truths about life we all should be aware of from your experience? Wow. Um, well, I think probably number one on the list is uh, it's, it's a profound mystery just to be here at all. And it's not a mystery that we understand or may ever fully understand. And the other thing is that beautiful gift and mystery is very short. You know, we're here, we're, we're here for maybe seven or eight decades if we're lucky and then we're gone. And as far as we know, we never come back and that might, that might very well be it. Um, so it's, 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 you know, as the Buddha said, things are beautiful because they are doomed. You know, it's, 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 it's the, it's, the preciousness in part comes from the fact that we're, nothing is going to last forever. Because in, in some sense, if it lasted forever, it would be so easy to just take it for granted. But the fact that that sunset lasts for just a moment, you know, you know, whatever it is, I mean, it's all fleeting. You know, and there's a there's a inscription on this uh, these little wooden 
plaques that are hit with a hammer to call people to meditation, you know, in the Zen tradition. And uh, the quote is, um, life is fleeting, gone, gone, awake, awake, do not waste this life. And I, that has stuck with me from the very first time I read it, because that's sort of the essence of it. You know, it, we're, we're precious and we're brief. And a lot of a lot of lifetimes of reflection on that, I think, can can lead to a very worthy life. Yeah, I like that. My last question to you about the topic of inner peace and acceptance of reality is what is to be free enough to do things in life with greater presence? Well, uh, practice, practice makes better if not perfect, right? So I think, <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, after 23 years, I still do formal sitting meditation because I think um, that I, I know from long experience that if I drift away from that for a time, it makes a very big difference in terms of how present I am for the rest of the day. Um, you know, and it's like any, you know, it's like anything else that is, that needs to be cultivated, whether it's physical fitness or anything else. I mean, you got to keep doing it because it's, you know, it's, if you stop, it's the effects are just simply not going to persist. So. And it is very powerful. Yeah. The practice of meditation. Yeah. Um, so you just have to be persistent, but you know, underlying that is that you, you, you have to be sincerely motivated because if you're not, if you're, if your heart's not in it, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, it really isn't going to have anywhere near the effect, I think, is if, if you're, if you're not sincere about the practice. Putting the heart into it, it's very important. What is it? What's to put the heart into meditation? Um, well, you know, I think scientists have come to the conclusion that motivation is very important and there's no formula for creating it. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, and so I think it's kind of a, you know, it's a little bit of a, cir a circle. I think actually having enough motivation to at least do something and then start to realize the benefits of it can then feed back and increase the motivation. So, you know, it's not like I'm saying that if you're not super motivated, forget about it. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. But I think if you're motivated enough just to go out and run or bike or walk every day, you know, you'll start to feel better and therefore you'll be motivated, more motivated to do it. And I think, you know, the same has been true for me with meditation is, you know, I, I I have, I do drift away from it for a week or two, and then I really start to notice the difference. And I'm like, oh yeah, yep. I, I really want to go back to this. It's that important to me. For how long do you meditate? Um, it very, you know, especially since I had kids, it's been, <laughs> it's been a little more shorter meditations. Right? <laughs> yeah, but I usually, I usually um, try to do you know, I, I get up early in the morning and do it. And I usually do it for like a uh, half an hour. Do you recommend that everyone um, meditate for 30 minutes or less could also be effective? 
Yeah, I think the the general consensus is uh, even 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 if the most you can do is two or five minutes, that's still way better than nothing. You know, I think everybody has to make an individual choice for themselves as to what they can tackle. And I think not having an all or nothing attitude is really important because if you feel like, well, if I can't meditate a half an hour, an hour a day, I might as well just forget it. Um, um, I don't think that's as productive as saying, well, let me just start with with two minutes. And if that seems approachable to you and you're motivated to do it, then just start there and then see what happens. I like that. Do what we can, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Start where we are at. Um, do you teach your children how to meditate? Yep, I do. Um, you know, not, not all the time because, I, you know, you kind of, you kind of got to go with the ebb and flow of children. And if they're not receptive, you know, I, I meditation's not the kind of thing that I want them to view as being another chore to do. <laughs> right. True. Yes. So when I, when I see opportunities, I seize them, but you know, they're still young enough at eight and nine that, um, you know, I just, I just try to be responsive to where they are and, and what they're receptive to. Okay. So, uh, in a way, you're saying that meditation is really hard to teach uh, children. It can be. I mean, it depends. You know, it depends on the kids. You know, some kids take to it more than others. You know, because we're all just very individual. But the other thing I've done is there's this um, this whole series of books um, called the I think they're called the Buddha's Apprentice or whatever, and they're they're children's stories that are based on Buddhist teachings, and they're they're very cute and um, the kids just love it. You know, I was kind of surprised at how much they like it. And, you know, they, I've read, you know, there's three or four books in the series and I've, I've read them more than once to the kids cause they, they really enjoy it. And so that's, you know, that's something that they're more responsive to. So I've, you know, gone with that a little bit more than with the, the formal meditation. Right. I like that. What's the name of the series again? Josh? I think it's, I think it's Buddha's Apprentice. I'll look into it and possibly a link to your interview so parents they can uh, use that as a method. Yeah, I can I can email you the name too and the name of the author. Oh, great. Yeah, that would be excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So my last questions to you outside of the the subject that we have been talking. How do we become our best friend? Ah uh. Um, I would say that's, that's another way of, um, I think the answer to that is another way of saying that that sort of willingness to be with ourselves as we are, I think is, is being the best possible friend to yourself that you can be, you know, whether you're angry or confused or tired or whatever, it's just that, that willingness to simply be with yourself as you are in that moment is, is a great way to be your own friend. Describe life in one word. Mysterious. What never fails to make you smile? <laughs> uh, uh, my kids. Mm, I thought so. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself, others, and life? Um, that it's... Yeah, that it really isn't, the world is often not the way I want it to be. Um, 
and that uh, it's been a long journey to, um, you know, let go of, of those demands and expectations of life. What is your definition of success? Um, living consciously. If today was the end of your adventure on earth, what would you regret to have done or said? Um, <laughs> I do sort of wish uh, that I wasn't such a slow Zen student. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that, that wisdom doesn't take so long to cultivate. <laughs> Right. It does, right? It takes a long time. Yep. Right. What is to be strong? Um, being willing to meet life as it is. Sorry, sorry if I sound like a broken record, but yeah, I think it takes tremendous courage to um, drop the defense mechanisms and the running and the mental gymnastics and just stop and um, face life as it is. What is to be true to yourself? Uh, well, again, I, I would say it's being um, completely aware to what's really going on with you, um, what you're really doing, thinking, what you're really up to. Um, yeah. If it is possible to know, right, what we're up to. Yeah. Boy. Yeah. Do you believe in some, some kind of life after death? I honestly have no idea. Yeah, I just I don't I don't have a strong emotional need to believe believe that it's one way or the other. Um, but I, I I really you know I feel like I have no idea. Right. I understand. And you don't have any um, desires to know that life continues, that um, your consciousness continues on after death. Is this a, a wish? You know, it, it never really has been. I've never, I've never actually really cared that much whether life goes on or not, which sounds kind of bizarre to say, but I think that's really true. I think, I think one of the things that made me simpatico with Zen in the first place is that um, um, I think on a primal level, you know, none of us really wants to die, but for some reason, I'm just very focused on this life. That's. Um... That's actually very interesting that you're, you're never afraid, really, or you're never wished uh, to live on. It's very yeah. interesting. If you knew you would die soon, what would you change about your life or yourself? Um, honestly, not much. I, I think I'm pretty much doing exactly what I feel like I need to be doing. So um, it wouldn't matter whether it was tomorrow or 40 years from now. Wow. Great. <laughs> really great. Thank you so much, Josh, for your um, wisdom. You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you. Where can we find more information about you, what you do, projects? Well, um, yeah, I think that my main online presence is my, my LinkedIn site. Um, you know, and I do, I do have a blog on Medium. Do you have the link? Uh, LinkedIn, what is the, um, the ID name? 
Um, I think it's just linkedin.com um, slash Joshua Sandeman. And the Medium um, blog, do you have um, the link? Can you? Uh, well, you can search it on Medium. The title of the blog is Whirlpools in the Stream. Mm, great. Thank you so much again for your presence. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now, Josh. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Josh Sandman, please visit his LinkedIn page, linkedin.com slash in slash Joshua hyphen Sandman. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.